Welcome to On the Front Burner, where we give you a taste of important issues bubbling up in education and the world today. Welcome to the podcast. I am Matt O'Donnell, the Technology Innovation Specialist at the Sonoma County Office of Education. And I'm Anna Babarande, Coordinator for Science at the Sonoma County Office of Education. Today's podcast focuses on NASA's legacy of exploration and discovery. We'll talk about NASA's history, what they're currently working on in future missions, and their resources for education and hopes for students who are the next generation of STEM workers. Our guest today is Walt England, Director of Space Technology and Exploration at NASA Langley. So to start, can you tell us what your role is now and what it has been in the past for NASA? Oh, thanks, Anna. So I'm right now, I'm the Director of Space Technology and Exploration at NASA Langley Research Center. I've been here 30 years and done a lot of things in those 30 years. I've worked on a couple of Mars programs. I've worked on a Mach 10 hypersonic airplane. I've worked on launch vehicles. I've worked on space transportation architecture studies. So just a wide variety of mostly things related to space at NASA. NASA, of course, does more than just space. We've got the first A in NASA is for aeronautics. So there's a lot of folks at NASA who work on aviation and aircraft, improving aircraft and transportation systems. And we've got a big group that does science for planetary science missions and astrophysics and Earth science. So my, my career at NASA has been focused primarily on space technology and human exploration of space. And then in terms of um, the history for Langley, because it is the original NASA facility, right? Yeah, so Langley was created in 1917. We just celebrated our 100-year anniversary two years ago and are looking forward to the next 100 years. It was the original government aeronautics laboratory formed under what was the predecessor to NASA, the NASA Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And in 1958, when NASA was created as a result of the Soviet Union and their Sputnik launch, then the Langley Aeronautical Memorial Laboratory, which is what we had been, became the NASA Langley Research Center. It was one of now 10 NASA field centers. And what areas does Langley currently focus on? Well, that's a great question. NASA is one of the, is probably the only center of the 10 centers that focuses on all of NASA's missions, the, the aeronautics, science, exploration, and space technology. So we we are a research center. We don't do the big missions like launching the space shuttle or the, the Mars probes or the James Webb Space Telescope, but Langley does research and technology development that essentially enables all of those missions from human spaceflight to robotic spaceflight to aeronautics and airplanes that you fly in every day. So if we look back historically, societies have for a long time funded exploration and discovery. How is NASA similar to or different from those previous endeavors? Like the explorers of old, Columbus, for example, or the Indians who, you know, were were exploring the lands. We, We are constantly reaching outwards and devising methods to look further out and understand what is out in the great beyond. Um, we do that with, with humans, obviously the astronauts and the human spaceflight program, but we also do it with robotic missions. Um, for example, the Voyager spacecraft is out beyond the helium 
menopause, which is further than any anything that humans have ever developed and continues to send back data from the great beyond in outer space. We've got missions that are at Mars right now. We've got rovers that are actually a rover, Curiosity rover, that continues to operate on the surface of Mars. One of the most exciting missions that, that is really of interest to me is something called Dragonfly, which is one that just got approved, and NASA Langley is working with the Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland and NASA Ames out there in California to send a quadcopter to Titan, which is moon, one of the moons of Saturn. And that is going to be a, just a tremendously exciting mission, both from the science and, you know, from public engagement and the fact that we're developing this autonomous UAV quadcopter that will fly in another world. So exploration is a is a constant theme in essentially everything NASA does. Well, earlier you mentioned Sputnik and the Soviet Union. How important was it for NASA to have the Soviet Union as a rival? Did it make discovery happen at a quicker rate, or did it cause NASA to take unnecessary risks? Well, it definitely spawned the speed at which we developed Apollo. Obviously, Apollo was a you know part of the, the Cold War and, and our response. Really, it was a geopolitical war and one that we used as space program rather than weapons to, to win. And I think history would show that we did. It certainly provided the impetus and motivation. Kennedy's speech in 1962 said we will send a man to the moon and bring him home safely by the end of the decade. That was a challenge, and it was one that the whole world was watching to see if we could live up to. And obviously we did. And I sometimes wonder what it would have been like and where we would be if we had not risen to that challenge and succeeded. We don't, at the moment, have a, a real honest-to-goodness Cold War that we're, we're fighting like we were back then, but we certainly have adversaries, geopolitical, international adversaries, who are making plans to go to the moon and explore outer space, and we'd like to figure out a way to do that cooperatively, but if we can't, you know, there are some things that we need to do to protect our interests and those of the nation. So NASA is involved in, in trying to figure out how to make that work. So in recent years, there has been more collaboration with Russia and the International Space Station and the EU and with SpaceX. Is that the future of NASA where it's a public-private relationship? Absolutely. Yeah, those are so a couple things. So it's really interesting that in the 1960s, we were in this Cold War with the Soviet Union, and here we are in the 21st century, and now we're we're partners and collaborating with them on things like the International Space Station. Just a tremendous testament to the, the power of cooperation and international collaboration in a space endeavors. And certainly with the European Union and the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, all partners in the, the International Space Station and what we've done in the last two decades, really, to develop that international flying laboratory. The commercial piece with companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin, I, absolutely, that is a big part of the NASA strategy going forward. People like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and others out there, there's a whole new commercial new space industry, people that really want to be part of space exploration and by leveraging their capabilities and the expertise that NASA has developed over the last 100 plus years now. We think that's going to enable a whole new realm of possibilities in both human spaceflight and exploration and, and robotic missions as well. 
As we look back at the at Apollo and celebrating the anniversary, one of the themes that's really come out is that it united the world in a way that it hadn't been united before. How do you see that continuing with NASA? Is it through these collaborations or are there other ways that NASA is bringing the world together? Well, the Apollo 50th, which just happened, that was just really exciting. It sort of galvanized a, a whole population again around the excitement that Apollo generated. And you can imagine there were a lot of people in this country who weren't even born when Apollo happened. But I think that the celebration that we all just witnessed really brought all that back to the fore. And I think we want to capitalize on that and you know get people excited both from a you know just the exploration, the idea of exploring as explorers, and, and exciting a whole new generation of people who can be a part of that, and that obviously includes the education component and within the schools and the you know the whole STEM motivation that came out of Apollo. I think we want to do that again in just in a much bigger way this time because the opportunities are much broader with both the government and the commercial and now the international community. So you mentioned education and STEM resources. What specific resources does NASA have for educators that they could find online or have access to? Oh, there's a tremendous, NASA has, is in terms of government, U.S. government, NASA probably has more resources available and, and opportunities for educators and students and the public at large. I think you just go online to the www.nasa.gov and look for uh, education and outreach. Each of the NASA field centers has education and public outreach offices. And I know the people that work in those offices are just extremely passionate about working with the public and kids and educators and helping them access the, the content and the resources that NASA has made available. And then looking more broadly at education, from the position that you're in and seeing uh, the people that are working at NASA, what should we be aiming for in K-12 education? What are the skills and knowledge that students need as they're now graduating in the 21st century? That's a great question, Anna. And it's, you know, it's interesting because when people say NASA, what do you need to do to work at NASA? Most people think, well, you've got to be an engineer or a scientist, and that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, NASA has a tremendous variety of skills that are required. Obviously, engineers and scientists are, are a big part of that, but you know we've got people who do business development and run the facilities and accountants and, and doctors and lawyers, and there's, there are just an unbelievable number of opportunities if you're interested in working with and for NASA. Obviously, the, the commercial companies that are you know, coming to the fore, the SpaceX's and the Blue Origins, they're kind of the same way. They've got a, a, a large engineering workforce, but they've got people that do, you know, accounting and facilities and edu they have education outreach. It just, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities. You don't necessarily have to be an engineer or a scientist to, to work in the space exploration or aviation aircraft industry. That said, you know, my, my background as, as an engineer has been uh, really exciting. And obviously, if you're interested in pursuing an engineering or a science career, I would encourage anyone to as early as possible, and that could be in grammar school or middle school, take advantage of opportunities to experience things, hands-on experiences that, you know, get you exposure to the kinds of things that, that NASA and the aerospace industries 
are involved in, and those could be you know, things like maker fairs or career fairs or science fairs. If you have internship opportunities, and there are plenty, with certainly within NASA and with companies either in high school or in college, you know those are great opportunities to experience what it's like to be in a particular position or role and decide if that's the thing you want to do for your career. And you make connections with people who um, can help you determine what it is you need to do to get to the next steps, you know, what additional classes or what kind of, you know, other experiences you might need to, to continue to progress. You mentioned the quadcopter and some new endeavors for NASA. What else is on the horizon? What other missions do you have planned? Oh, it's a great question. So Artemis is the name of the new program that and NASA is standing up to send the first woman and the next man to the surface of the moon in 2024. Artemis was actually the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology, so she will personify NASA's new human exploration program and the next astronauts that will land on the surface of the moon. So we're utilizing the, the new space launch system, the NASA rocket and the Orion space capsule, along with commercial companies like SpaceX um, and maybe Blue Origin and others who will develop lander systems that will deliver us to the surface of the moon in 2024. So we're really excited about that. The, the ultimate goal is to send astronauts to Mars, which is probably the most Earth-like of all of our planets. We, we would really like to do that. We're pursuing a 2030 decade of the 2030s to have humans on the surface of Mars. So the moon is really a stepping stone to Mars. In parallel with the Artemis program, the human exploration, the science side of the house is actually developing plans for a robotic Mars sample return mission that we're going to launch later this decade or in the 2020s. And so NASA Langley is involved in that with JPL and NASA Ames out in California. So we're really excited about that mission as well. And by bringing samples back to from Mars to Earth, uh, that will enable us to understand more about the, both the atmosphere and the surface conditions at Mars so that when we do send astronauts there, we'll be prepared or they will be prepared to, to live and work on the surface of Mars and the Mars environment. So those two things, both Artemis and the Mars sample return mission, are things that we're really excited about. Those sound amazing. Now, one thing you said is that some of the stuff that is coming to fruition has you've been working on for 10 years. And from my understanding, that's pretty common for NASA, that you're working with a really long timeline. So the things you're doing now will come into play later. Can you talk to us about what does that feel like as someone working on the projects? Yeah, sure. That's a great question, Anna. The, the time constant or the time scales that NASA works in are probably not obvious to the public you know we stand up a new mission like going to the moon in five years and it really does rely on and require technology investments and developments that sometimes date back 10 or even 15 years and that's certainly the case with most of the big missions that we do the public doesn't necessarily do that see that but that's exactly why places like NASA Langley Research Center exist and NASA Ames out in California. They are research centers and are tasked with developing technologies and capabilities that will enable future missions. 
And so we work on technologies that sometimes take decades to come to fruition. And the fact that NASA and the U.S. government see fit to invest in those on a long-term time scale is really important because a lot of those technologies are things that companies, private companies and industry, can't afford to invest in with that far of a or that that long of a time constant, right? They just don't make sense from a business perspective. So that's really one of the primary reasons NASA exists is to develop those called pre-competitive commercial technologies. So that kind of touches on the next question. Um, it's interesting looking back at Apollo that there was actually a lot of resistance, a lot of people saying, why are we trying to go to the moon when there's so much chaos right here, right now? And I think that that is something that is still an argument that people use about why are we funding NASA? What would you say to that? Well, I would say today NASA is a tremendous bargain. The NASA budget is about one half of 1% of the total federal budget, so a half a penny on the dollar. And for that half a penny on the dollar, we get tremendous advancements and capabilities in aviation and science and exploration, inspiration. I mean, the whole world looks at NASA and understands that the U.S. are leaders in exploration and in space and aviation because of NASA. And all of that for a, a mere half a penny on the dollar to me is a, is a, is a really tremendous investment. You know, it's we could say that the world certainly and the nation has other problems, but I would argue that, you know, even if you took the whole NASA budget and applied those to those other problems, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't solve them all. So from an investment in our future, it's, uh, I think this one is pretty sound and hard to argue. Since uh, NASA does plans over the long term and, and federal budgeting is, is on the short term and we have different administrations come and go. How does NASA plan things with different budgets? Do they have to cut programs in the middle? Do they have to scale back or scale up at different times? Well, fortunately, NASA has pretty broad bipartisan, you know, both sides of the political spectrum support and from the House and the Senate and the President. So although we do have administration changes every four years or eight years, sometimes there are some changes in the direction or the, the programs of record, they call them. By and large, we do pretty well, I would say better than most of the federal government in the, the continuity of, of the things that we we do and the things that are really important for NASA to be doing. So we've been very lucky. That, that obviously takes a great deal of communication and support from, the, you know, the Congress and the public. That's part of why we go to such great lengths to communicate our mission and what we do and to make sure the public stays engaged and supportive, which helps obviously with, you know, when it comes time for Congress to appropriate budgets. Now for you personally, you've seen a lot of different exploration and discovery over your career. Uh, what has, what have been some of your highlights? My first real success from a mission perspective at NASA was Mars Pathfinder. That was all the way back in 1997. So that was uh, actually the third um, U.S. mission to the surface of Mars. Viking 1 and Viking 2 were, uh, it landed in 1976. So those predated me by a little bit. They just celebrated their 43rd anniversary of the Viking missions on July 20th, which not coincidentally was also the anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. 
obviously a different year, but the same date, July 20th. So while most of the nation was focused on and excited by the Apollo 50th, there was a group of, we call them the Vikings here at Langley, who worked on that Viking mission. We were celebrating Viking landing at Mars. So I worked on the Mars Pathfinder mission in 97, which was really exciting to me. And that was kind of the sort of the next wave of Mars exploration. Uh, there had been a lull from 76 to 97. But after that Pathfinder landing, we've landed Spirit and Opportunity, the twin rovers. Uh, we've got a couple of orbiters, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Mars Orbiter. Uh, Mars Phoenix and Mars Insight, which just landed this year. And they aren't rovers, they're surface landers, but doing tremendous science at Mars. And obviously the Curiosity rover, which landed in 2012 on the big sky crane, which I think a lot of people saw and were, were really excited about. That was the, the six minutes of terror, the seven minutes of terror. And I'm happy to say that there's another Mars mission coming up in 2020. We're going to send a, another Mars, big Mars rover with a different set of science instruments that will prepare us for the Mars sample return mission later this decade. So that's kind of the Mars roadmap that the Dragonfly Titan quadcopter, I think I mentioned earlier, we're really excited about that because just the idea of flying a, an unmanned aerial vehicle autonomously on another planet is really exciting and that's got some tremendous science that's going to uh, be part of that mission as well yeah that along with the artemis mission are really the things that are you know getting us excited get the juices flowing and make us really excited about coming to work every day here at nasa and for the quadcopter you say you said there's some science behind it what are the goals of that mission well titan is a they call it an ocean world. It has a, a, a very dense atmosphere, about four times that what the Earth's atmosphere has. And, and as a result, it has seasonal variations and weather patterns. And from a, from a science perspective, there's an awful lot we can learn about studying Titan and its ability to harbor life. They're, they're part of the Dragonfly mission is to look for signs of prior pre-existent life on Titan, and perhaps even current life on Titan. So it is, from a, from a science perspective, it is one of the most compelling destinations besides Mars, of course, depending on who you talk to in the entire solar system. As you look forward to everything that NASA is going to explore, is there one big thing that you really hope to see in your career? I, I would really like to see astronauts on Mars. Whether or not that will happen in my career, I'm not sure. That'll be in the 2030s, probably not much before that. But that's the one thing that motivates me is sort of my ultimate motivation. Obviously, returning to the moon is pretty exciting, too. So I take that in my career. Certainly within the next five years, that'll probably be within my career horizon. So, But not only that, the, you know, the robotic exploration really excites me, too. So the Mars sample return mission is something that I've worked on or been a part of, at least from a you know, mission concept study, for like the last 20 years. There have been a number of different proposals and mission architectures, but I think we finally found one that's going to work and looks like it has approval. So Mars and the Moon are the things that keep me motivated. And then our last question for you, there's a lot of educators out there who are nervous about teaching science and teaching STEM. They don't feel like that is their expertise. And yet they have these students in their classes that will potentially be the next generation of NASA workers and of explorers. What advice would you give to them? 
Well, again, I think NASA has a tremendous set of education resources and materials that whether or not you're you're a scientist or an engineer educator, I think there are still things that you can take advantage of and leverage just to inspire kids. I mean, the inspiration is is easy when you've got a great mission and a great vision and all those materials are available. And whether you use them at a math class or a physics class or a you know, a basic science class or just an explorer class from a sociological perspective. There's just just tremendous opportunities and materials out there that are available to help send that message forward to all of our to young generation. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you the best of luck on these future missions. Yeah, and we're excited yeah. to see how it unfolds. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun and uh, I look forward to sharing with you when we uh, land the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon in just a few short years. We'd we'd love to have another podcast to talk about that in the future. (laughs) Thank you for listening to On the Front Burner. This podcast was produced by the Sonoma County Office of Education 